Welcome to another inspiring message from Milestone Church in Keller, Texas. I'm grateful to be with you. Your hospitality has been exemplary. All the little things you do to make somebody feel like they're at home. Um, my staff allows me uh, the privilege of staying healthy. And so they feed me, me stuff to make sure I'm, I'm going to be around for a long time. <laughs> now, I must admit, I participate in the process, and I tell them exactly what I'd like. But one of my, one of my enduring drinks is kombucha. <laughs> now, by the, by the lack of laughter, most, most of you don't know what that is. And I'm happy for you. <laughs> it is a nasty drink. Uh, but it's healthy for you. It's supposed to do the probiotic thing. And I drink it every day. And I do so because at some point, 15 years ago, I decided I'd rather be healthy than happy. <laughs> but lo and behold, I come in my hotel room and I open my refrigerator and yes, there's kombucha for me there. Your hospitality has been amazing. All the little things make it seem like I'm at home. And I appreciate it. You're an amazing church. I had the privilege of ministering to the congregation on Saturday night. They are outstanding. Your staff is great. You got the best pastors in the world. Jeff and Brandy are amazing. Jeff, the executive pastor, is outstanding with Ginger. And your whole staff, you all are a blessed people. And every day of your life, you need to thank God that you've got the leadership you do. And secondly, you need to pray every day for their well-being. I'm glad to be with you. Welcome McKinney Campus, welcome the online audience, as well as our video service. Glad to have you today. Um, before I get in my message, I, I thought it'd be at least proper that Pastor Jeff mentioned that I've got seven children. It's true, and I'm going to show them to you. Those are them, along with my beautiful bride. That's Cynthia next to me on the left. She is the finest woman since Eve, by the way. Then we've got on the far right here, bottom corner, Elizabeth, who is my daughter-in-law, married to the gentleman above her, which is Joseph, my oldest, at 30. To his left and up, Brian is 27. Joseph and Libby are in New York City. They are doing great there and love God and working good jobs, enough to where they don't call me for money, so hallelujah. <laughs> the one to the left of Brian is Garrison. Gar uh, uh, Brian over here is 27. Garrison is 25. He's a campus minister with me at George Mason University, touching college students. Uh, to his left is my baby boy, Grant. He's 18. He just graduated from high school. Uh, to bottom left of him is Tellus. He's my youth minister in my church, fabulous young man. To his right is my daughter, Brooke, who's on the mission field right now, doing her studies at Liberty University in her second semester, junior year, the required and global studies majors to go on the mission field. And so she is functioning in a country I can't tell you about, but doing great preaching the gospel. I'm so proud of her. It's one of those where pastors are proud, but daddies are scared. Go! No! <laughs> to her right is our adopted daughter, Meredith. Mama was 16, daddy was 15. They came to us 25 years ago and said, could anybody adopt our baby in your church? My wife and I said, sure. She was eight months pregnant. A month later, we brought the baby home from the hospital. She's been a blessing. She's at Liberty University as well. Um, those are all my seven people. The, uh, as I said, the, the, the two on the right 
top and bottom are in New York. The rest of them are living at home, and, and Cynthia and I are really looking forward to missing all of them. <laughs> I've been tasked with the responsibility of talking about what overcoming looks like, and really in, in mind uh, of your, your sermon series that's on the way when Jeff gets back. And uh, so today I'm going to speak on 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. The title of the message is The Overcoming Life. The Overcoming Life. Jabez, verse 9, was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother named him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him with pain. Now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, that it may not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things about this passage that I'd like to highlight. One, what it means to have an aspired life, meaning you're aspiring for something. Two, what it means to get through affliction-filled birthing, and three, what it means to ask God properly. Here we've got a passage that is often preached, and so the challenge for me is to make it seem like you've never heard it. Let me start with Jabez's mother, who's not named here. What a woman. Whatever this boy took her through, she came out of the other side with a note of victory. His name was Jabez. In the Hebrew, it's Yatseb. Excuse me, Yabetz. Yabetz. But the, the name that is for pain in the Hebrew is Atseb. But she named him Yabetz. And it's almost as if she were taking the name Atseb, which is for pain, and doing an onomatopoeia thing with it, where you switch the letters. And, and do something that allows the meaning that you're trying to convey to say something about the original word, but something more than the original word said using the same letters. I'm naming you pain, but the kind of pain out of which you do not have to live, but the kind of pain from which you will emerge. And it's almost as if she phonetically reversed the consonants and the vowels and the, the phonics of it whereby she was saying, even though we went through some difficult times, you do not have to be defined by that. That your life is going to be different. I want you to understand what you came through, but I want you to understand where you're going. And so much of our life is filled with difficulty. And too often, we let our tomorrow be defined by our yesterday. Not a good idea. This mama said, I'm not going to let my boy work through this. Now, I'm not quite sure what the pain was. And my, my dear wife, I mean, she really is amazing. There's no way that, that I could ever exaggerate her greatness. She's the best partner God could have ever given me. She is steady as she goes. She's beautiful. I'm attracted to her every day of my life. It's been 31 years, and she turns my head still. And I don't need any makeup. It's just her. I am in love with that woman. And it's not the kind of love that you fall in love. It's the kind of love where you grow in love. I've never known any, any way that the term fall has been used has ever been good. 
Falling's always bad. I mean, when you fall on ice where I am, you try to act like you didn't. Nobody likes falling. So why do we fall in love? Reality is once you fall in love, when you get married, you have to get back up. You're going to get back up in a hurry. All that stuff that you let go, what you've done is you've fallen from many principles because your emotions have taken over. And now you don't care about a whole lot of things that really matter to you later. So rather than falling in love, I believe in growing in love. That way you look at reality well and you say, okay, I'll deal with that. That's not good. That needs to change. I got to fix this in my own heart. I'm growing in love with you. My wife has grown in love with me and I with her. An amazing human being. And, and there are so many things I could brag about, but, but, but one in particular that really stands out is she, she, she bore six kids. And each one of her pregnancies, all nine months, she was sick. I mean, horribly sick. The kind of sick that lasts for three months lasted for nine for her. And yet she, she kept getting in the batter box. She stepped coming up to the, just kept coming up to the place saying, let's go again. Let's go again. Thinking, wow, you're just something else. And as difficult as all of the pregnancies were, I told you the names of my children and none of them were pain. What was this? Who was Jabez? How difficult was it that mama had to say, it was bad. I'm going to name you. It was so bad, I'm going to name you after the moment. Wow, wow. Now, we don't know whether it was the nine months she was carrying him because it doesn't say specifically about birth. It just says she bore him. And I am still burying all those people you saw. She bore them for nine months. We have borne them for 20 some odd years. And we are really looking forward to the day when we will miss them. <laughs> They're all still in my house. So we're still burying them. And so you, you don't know what it means. It, 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 was, it, was it the, the nine months? Was it three full days worth of labor and pain? Was it the, the period of time of, of you know, growing up in the, the terrible two period? Was the child just a pain to raise? We're not quite sure. But whatever it was, it was bad. And she made sure that her son wasn't going to be defined by that experience. Reminding him that it wasn't, you can't ignore your circumstances. You can't ignore your past. It's there. But you can't deal with it well. It was hard. And I named you this, but I named you it switched. You can emerge from this and be something else. And it says he was a man who was more noble than his brothers, meaning Something about what mama did inspired him to be something else. And mamas, you have a great role. We just celebrated Mother's Day last week. Love all y'all. But I'm telling you, you got a great role, not just in the way of protection and nurturing, but training. Inspire your children to be great every day. Help them understand that their purpose and destiny is far beyond what they can ask or think. God's got greatness in store for them. And this one here, I mean, the book of Chronicles, the first six or seven chapters is, you know, let's just say it's not that inspiring. 
he beget so-and-so, who beget so-and-so, and then died. Who beget so-and-so, who beget so-and-so, and then died. And it's just one beget after another. And it's one of those moments, you're a good Christian, and you, you believe all the Bible is the Word of God, but in your own logic, you're thinking, do I have to read this part? <laughs> I mean, in your devotional time, when you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're thinking, can I just skip this God and get to the good part? Can I get to the chase, please? But you can't. Because it's important to make sure that you read through the entire thing so you get to Jabez. You never get to Jabez if you skip this part. Sometimes you get somebody in the normal order and progress of humanity that just pops out. Everybody lives, everybody has kids, everybody dies. And then there's somebody who lives and you go, whoa, that's different. Be that person. Aspire to that. And don't let your past become that which defines your future. Aspire something about Jabez. Said, I'm going to be different than everybody else around me. I don't think it was the, the, the itch of insignificance in his soul which needed to be scratched by significance. I don't think he was that insecure. I just thought, he said, my mama named me different even though I can't run from the circumstances of that which I grew up in. I know I'm supposed to be different than them because she named me different. She wanted me to know I should emerge from it. So I'm going to aspire to it. God's got a call on your life. And even if your mama couldn't figure out how in the world to raise you well, she did the best she could, best she could, but it didn't turn out like you thought, you might have some issues, you got God Almighty who can be the great catch-up artist. That's why you fall into his hands and he can help you. He can help you. Aspire to something great. Don't let mediocrity be your standard. Normal is not normal for a Christian. We're supposed to be supernormal. We call it supernatural. We're supposed to be on the other side of what everybody expects life to be. We're supposed to be overcoming all the difficulty that overcomes everybody else. That's the way we ought to be every day of our lives. Aspire to it. Aspire to it. Aspire to it. And then affliction-filled birthing. Again, we don't know the difficulty that Jabez has. It's not, it's not really outlined. But trials are a part of life. Difficulty can't be escaped. It's that which we wake up to every day. I mean, the world's going the wrong way. It's bent the wrong way. It's not your friend. And every day we are called minimally just to swim upstream in order to keep from going back. Just treading, just making sure we are working really hard, treading water, if you will. We may not be making much progress, but at least we aren't regressing. Just to, just to keep our heads above water. And we have to press even harder to really make progress against the enemy's kingdom. And so the world presents itself in such a way as an enemy as that which needs to be resisted on a regular basis. And if the world itself wasn't enough, there's an, there's an inspirer, there's, there's a person behind it called Satan and all of his minions that are doing everything they possibly can to make your day extra bad. They want to destroy you 
not because they really believe you have great impact, though you do, but primarily because they don't like God, but they can't get him, but you look like him. You look enough like him that they can't stand you and they think they can hurt him by hurting you. And so they come after you. Now, it might be that they understand something about the destiny that is on your life. They are not, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he knows some stuff. And the stuff that he knows is usually a little bit more than you do if you don't read your Bible. You need to read your Bible every day so you can at least know more than he does. Now, 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 Satan is one being at one time. We like to think that he is this powerful creature that can do all the things that seem a whole lot like God. No, not true. He's, he's just a being. He's, just, he, he, he's in one space, one time. He can't be every place at once. He's not all powerful. And God looks at you on the, on the hierarchy of, of, of creation as being better and more important than him. We are made in God's image. We are the regents of the earth. That's what separates us from the rest of creation. I realize that you, you, you want to make Fido a part of the family, but he can't have your last name. He's a dog. He's a dog. And I, I like animals. I, I, I really do. I, sort of. I, I, I like them, but, but I'm, I'm, there's, there's, when I was growing up, a pet store was about 600 square feet. And a hole in the wall. That's all it was. And you had a bunch of puppies, you went in there and got one. Now it's, it's a department store. And, 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 and pets have become so important in people's lives that you see people divorcing one another and going to their pet. And, and they say, my pet loves me unconditionally. He doesn't. The only reason you think your pet loves you unconditionally is because he can't talk. Your pet doesn't have any manners. He just can't talk. But if he could talk, he'd say this, I hate kibbles and bits. You better bring me some Purina up in here. Some blue buffalo, I want some gourmet stuff. They don't know how to say please, they don't know nothing. Okay, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna rail on piss. My, 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 my point, my point <laughs> is that we are different. We're made in his image. Satan is not. He's just another created being. And this is why the fall of creation was so bad, because you had God, you had man, and you had everything else. And Adam switched it. God, Satan became in charge of the planet, then man. So bad with it all, topsy-turvy. And now we think because he's had some degree of dominion that, that he's super powerful. He's only super deceptive. He's generally as strong as you let him be. Now, I'm not trying to diminish his supernaturalist. There are things he can do that human beings cannot. But I don't want to magnify his power to the degree that all of a sudden we're, we're scared of folks, scared of the enemy like when we see the Exorcist movie. And heads begin to turn around and all green stuff starts flowing out of people's mouths. And we think, wow, that's why. No, no, listen. We have dominion and authority. 
This world is going the wrong way. And you've got the minions of, of, of the enemy, the demons, and everything is pushing against you. And this is why you've got to be armed well to deal with the afflictions that, face, that face you every day. You cannot just get up and just pretend like nothing is going to happen untoward today. But you can't be afraid of the stuff that's going to happen. And you can't think, oh, woe is me, I'm going to have another bad day. No, 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 no. We look at our circumstances differently. Even though trials come our way, James says this. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that these are coming so that the testing of your faith can be that which produces something in you of maturity because you have need of endurance. And once you have fulfilled the process of the testing, you will be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. At the end of my sermon, I went out and shook people's hands and a woman came to me and said, thank you so much. I just wish the trials didn't come so many at once. I said, I know, it's hard but God is trying to grow you up really quick. It's, it, it's, it's like he's putting these things on you so that you can hurry up and get to where you need to be faster in him. So embrace it and allow the process to work on the inside of you and don't get bitter, but get better. God wants you to be, to be somebody who is being fulfilled through the process by finding refuge in him through your difficulty. Trials are difficult. But James says, this is how you deal with them. When you come to the front door, when they come to the front door, you, you say, hello. I, I, I didn't invite you. I'm not gl glad you're here. But I want you to know, I'm supposed to greet you with joy. So give me a hug. Because this is what's going to happen. When you leave, I'm going to be a whole lot better than when you came. In fact, you're going to wish you had never showed up because I'm going to be more mature, complete, lacking less. This is what trials ought to be. And so our affliction is that which we ought to look at as a friend because it's helping to let us know what needs to get out. And you have no idea how messed up you are until affliction comes. When Publishers Clearinghouse shows up at your front door with a $5 million check, everybody's happy, everybody shouts hallelujah, even the atheists are in prayer. But when tough times come, hardly anybody is thanking God. It's those times that show what needs to come out. When language that, that comes out of your mouth that should not, and, and you say to the person who heard it, I didn't mean it. I think all of us have been there. And what you really mean is this. I didn't mean for you to hear it. I've said it before. <laughs> I've thought it a thousand times, but now that you heard it, I'm accountable for it. I'm sorry but it was there. The only reason it came out is that it was there and it was masked before because no circumstance allowed it to be seen. And so trials allow you to see the weaknesses in your own soul so you can identify that which needs to get out. Affliction is that which comes to you so that you can understand, oh, I'm not responding in a biblical way here. That means I need to repent for my selfishness or my complaining or my bitterness or my anger or my resentment. I need to read my Bible and find out what God is saying about how I need to change in this area so I can become more like him. If this thing had not come, I would not have known how far I needed to go. Affliction filled birthing. There is nothing about my life. Nothing about my growing up life that would ever point to me being in this spot. I never wanted to be a pastor. 
I never wanted to be a minister. It wasn't on my occupational list. I was supposed to be a dentist. My dad was a dentist. I was going to take over his practice, provide for him in his retirement, have no overhead when I did it, and make it about 120 in 1985 in Kansas City. That was right. I mean, that was really right. I was accepted to Meharry Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee. Everything was set, and then I got saved. I got saved. I got saved. I got saved at Indiana University. And, and, and a guy talked to me on campus. I was walking back from my, from my class to my dorm, and, and all of a sudden my life was changed. I went to a meeting. God grew my leg out. It was amazing, and I was dynamited in the kingdom. And then my pastor had me, two weeks after I got right, stand up on campus and begin to talk to people about my testimony. I said, you want me to what? I don't know anything about what I'm going to say. I got up. I, I, I began to talk, and, and I was talking, and it was all horrible. It was, it, everybody was sitting out in the field at, at doing lunch at the student union and I was talking about 2,000 kids there and it was a terrible way to share my testimony. I, I didn't know what I was doing. He, he grabbed, I was standing on a wall, he grabbed my pants and I said, c- c- come, 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 on, come on down. <laughs> even though it was bad, I thought it was good. I said, how'd I do? He said, uh, we need to work on some stuff. But I was hooked. All I wanted to do was go out and share with people the gospel of God. I'd go on campus and just start talking to people about Jesus. I'd preach open air, just like I'm doing now in very conversational tones, not railing at people. And I'd have some students stand by, listen to what I'm saying. There'd be some other people who were in my church who were plants. They'd sit down and talk to the kids that seemed to be interested. People got saved on campus. I said, this is great. This isn't what I saw my preacher do when I was growing up. I'm enjoying this. I could do this for a living. And I got... I got kind of tricked into doing ministry and becoming a pastor because I so enjoyed talking to people and I so enjoyed seeing them get right. And then here I am, 37 years later. It wasn't on my occupational list because the way I grew up was not anything that would point to this. My parents couldn't figure out how to get along. They loved us as kids and they raised us wonderfully, but they didn't know what it meant to be husband and wife well. And, and me as the eldest child had, had to sometimes stand in the middle. And it wasn't pleasant. My dad moved us out from the inner city of Kansas City to the suburbs of, of Kansas City uh, in 1966. And if, 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 you haven't, if you haven't noticed yet, I'm black. <laughs> the suburbs were white. And in 66, nobody was rolling out the red carpet for me in my family. We were the first people to break the color barrier in my neighborhood. I was the first kid, black kid, to go to the elementary school, first grade. They egged our house. They destroyed our cars. We came out one morning. My dad had a beautiful 1964 Mustang ragtop that he had bought my mama. And we came out one morning. It was destroyed. I mean destroyed. Seats taken out, windows crashed, hood taken off, it gone just because we were who we were. And my dad said, I, I wanted, to move, wanted to move us out from the, the inner city because it was dangerous. And, and, and when I got older, I said, you tried to make us more safe. How'd that work out? <laughs> oh, it was hard. So I had the ethnic thing where I was trying to figure out how in the world to make friends when I couldn't. Couldn't. Nobody wanted to be friends with a black kid. I had the things in my own house. And there were some, so many other things that I had to emerge from. Now, I'm not crying the blues. I'm grateful for my upbringing. I'm not mad at anybody. 
There's no smoke on my life that's trying to rail about what somebody didn't do for bread. I'm just giving you the lay of the land, that's all. I have reconciled with everything and I'm grateful even for my difficulty in my past. But I've been able to come through only by the grace of God. The salvation experience allowed me the privilege of forgiving anybody who may have hurt me. It allowed me to understand the perspective that I needed to have from my parents. My, my grandfather was, uh, was dying and uh, it was 1983, 84. And I went down, he's in Tuskegee, Alabama, and I went down to be with him for the last two weeks of his life. My grandfather and my dad, his dad, didn't get along very well at all. And my dad um, so didn't get along very well with his dad that he couldn't even come down to be with him in his last two weeks. So I was there. And it was a very concentrated moment. I mean, you're, when you're a grandkid, grandparents are just like the best. All they do is just provide and give you opportunities for fun and put a little $5 bill in your pocket when you leave. And I mean, it's just great having grandparents. But you are, you're not, you don't know them really well. And for these two weeks, I sat at his bedside and listened to him just talk. It was so rich, so rich. Some of the richest periods in my life. But as I heard him talk, he would weave in my dad in the stories, who was the only child. And my dad didn't like my ministry. He wanted me to be a dentist. He hated what I was doing in ministry. And for five years, when I told him I was going into ministry rather than being a dentist, we really didn't talk. And I wasn't mad at him. I just realized how hurt he was and he didn't have Jesus. So I prayed and I said, Lord, please give me the privilege of trying to figure out how to restore my relationship with my father. I don't know how to do it. He hates what I'm doing. I spent this time down there with my grandfather. And as I did, a light bulb came off. Just boom. And I said, I get why my dad is the way he is. I get it. He came by everything honestly because his dad wasn't what he needed to be for him. I said, Lord, it stops in this generation. It stops in this generation. My children have not had the experience I had with my dad. All they've had is a little slice of heaven in their house. <laughs> All we are is an outpost of glory. <laughs> Stops in this generation. It, I, brought, I came back to my dad. I was merciful. I get it. I'm not mad at you anymore. I'm not mad at how you destroyed my house. I'm not mad. I get it. And mercy allowed me the privilege of ministering to him and leading him to Jesus. He, got, he came to live with me in his last days because he was sick. And uh, I baptized him in the tub of my house. He became the strongest member of my church and my church has fallen apart. It was an amazing final two years. All because Jesus had given me some keys that let me understand how to make my yabets, not atzeb, how to switch my pain to aspired living and help somebody out of their difficulty. Affliction doesn't have to be your epitaph. Difficulty doesn't have to be your tombstone. You can come out of that thing. So much so that nobody would ever know you were in it. Lastly, you have the prayer. Lord, bless me.
Now, the word bless here is the word barak in Hebrew. There is a culturally synonymic word, synonymic word called barek in Hebrew. Barek means to bow the knee. Barak means to be blessed. Two separate words, but as they grew together in Hebrew culture, they became synonyms, even though they sounded a little different. And the reason they became synonyms is because everybody realized this. In order to be blessed by God, you really need to bow the knee. You can't be blessed by God unless your knee is bowed to him. And if your knee is bowed, you can't but be blessed. And so they realize there's no way to be blessed except to bow. And when you are blessed, you will bow in thanksgiving. So they put them together and said, when you say this, you mean that. And when you say that, you mean this. When Jabez says, bless me, he's not saying, please give me stuff. I need a boat. I need a 7,000 square foot house. I need, I need three promotions to give me a corner office on the 25th floor, please. He's not saying that. He's saying, Lord... Give me the resources necessary to glorify you with them. And in the process, help me to be a better worshiper so that I can receive the resources necessary to glorify you. And let it be a, a wonderful re revolving door out of which I never get. I can't get out. Secondly, he says, enlarge my territory. All he's asking for, really, when you enlarge territory, is more responsibility. We have a, a larger than small church where I pastor, and there are pastors who come to me asking, how can I get a church like yours? How can I grow like you? And I, I ask them, you, you want a church like this? Yes. I said, are you sure? Yes. It, it, the question, I, and, 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 and it's a little bit like Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah was the main prophet. Elisha was his protege. Elijah was getting ready to be taken up into heaven. One of the two guys in, in the Bible that somehow or another didn't experience a funeral. And he was about to be taken up into heaven. Everybody knew it who was prophetic. Elisha was following him. And every place they would stop off as Elijah was telling the people, I'm leaving, he would look at Elisha and say, you can go home now. He said, I'm not leaving you. And so they keep going and go to the next place. You can go home now. I'm not leaving you. What do you want me to do for you? Give me a double blessing of your anointing, a double portion, which is fatherly language and son language, family language, to describe an inheritance from a father to a son. And Elijah said, okay, you've asked for a hard thing, but if you see me taken up, you'll have it. People come to me and say, I, I want a church your size. Really? Okay. You do know that when you're asking for people to come, you're asking for their problems to come with them, right? No complaint. It's just reality. People bring baggage. They don't come all by themselves. Now, when they, when they bring their baggage, you're hoping it's a carry-on. <laughs> but the people who come to my church, they, it, 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 you hear this when they're walking in the door. Beep, beep, beep. A huge semi is coming with all their issues. Again, no complaint, just reality. You want a big church, you got big problems. I'm just letting you know. It's not all what you think it is from the outside. You got to manage a lot of stuff. Lord, enlarge my territory. 
Give me more responsibility. I'm going to have to work more. You, you get happy, you finally get that house with 15 acres on it. You got a stock pond, everything's good. You've arrived. I mean, the kids are about ready to get out of the house. You go spend your Monday afternoons out there just pulling up one crop, crappie and bluegill after another. And then you look at the 10 acres and you realize most of it is not wooded. And grass is growing. And you're thinking to yourself, why did I do this? You want more? More work? Lord, enlarge my territory so I can be a better steward of your stuff. I realize it's going to cost me more. But let me, let, me, let me grow so that I can honor you with my stewardship privilege. Thirdly, that your hand may be with me. He's not asking for his hand to bless him. He already prayed that prayer in the beginning. He's saying that your hand might be with me. That's the presence of God. You don't want the stuff without him. I'm telling you, you don't want the stuff without him because there is nothing of this earth that will ever satisfy you. I don't care how wealthy you get. I don't care how many times you get promoted. I don't care how high you rise. There is nothing of this earth that will ever satisfy you because your heart is shaped in a way that, is a, that only allows God to fill. And when you allow his presence to be with you, everything else you have in terms of material possessions and progress in your own career or finances makes sense. When you don't have him with you, none of it makes sense. You wind up in Ecclesiastes with Solomon. All is vanity and chasing after the wind. Everything under the sun de degenerates, disintegrates. It just falls apart. So why do we work hard to try to get that which is going away anyway? Solomon got so feudalistic that he had a hard time trying to figure out what's the point of living. He lost his perspective of the eternal because all he could see was under the sun. And when you lose the presence of God with you, all you got is the stuff that's going away. You don't have the eternal. I'm begging you, be like Jabez, that your hand might be with me every day. I need your presence, oh God. Lastly, he said, Lord, that it may not pain me. Please keep me from harm. Keep me from harm that my life doesn't become more difficult. Now, Jesus could have coined anything he wanted, and anything he said was great, worthy of being inscribed as holy writ. But some of the stuff, I believe, he got from his Old Testament reading, because he read his Bible, his Old Testament. He read it. It helped him understand what his ministry was to be like and that through which he would have to suffer. And I'm, I'm convinced that the Lord's Prayer, at least in one portion of it, was taken from this particular prayer that Jabez prayed. You know the part where Jesus said, uh, please, Lord, don't, let me, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil? This sounds a whole lot like that. Keep me from harm that it may not pain me. Keep me from evil that I don't have to suffer the consequences of my own misdeeds. Help me not to shoot, boat, shoot holes in my own boat. I'm begging you, God. If you want to, Brett's prayer paraphrased, Lord, keep me from stupid. Because stupid always comes home to roost. It's painful. I had a guy come to me as I close, and he, he was 
telling me how difficult Christianity was. And he was really counting the cost as to whether he could live this life. He said, Pastor, it's just so hard. You know, you got to say no to a lot of stuff. And it's just so hard. I don't know how to do it. It's just so hard. I'm just struggling. I said, well, yeah, Christianity is not easy. That's true. It's not easy. But, but, but let me ask you a question. Um, how's that baby mama drama going for you? How's that, how's that working? Oh, it's, it's hard. Hmm. When you took that money from, the, from your company and you got fired, how'd that, how'd that work out for you? Well, I'm still unemployed. Hmm. You know, I like my version of hard better than yours. Amen. Yes, it's hard to do the right thing, but when I do the right thing, I have great benefit. I got a lot of stuff. I got kids who love me, and they all love God. I got a wife who loves me because I don't step out on her. I got friends that I've been with for 35 years who actually still like me. We pray for one another, and we've been with one another long enough to give more than enough reason for all of us to say bye to one another, but we still stay together. I have a great church. Nobody on the planet is more blessed than me. There may be people who are equally as blessed, but nobody's more blessed. And please don't, under, don't, don't somehow interpret that as being, I have a lot of money. I don't have it. Does anybody have enough? I, I'm always trying to believe God for something. It's not about finances. It's about the blessing that is on my life. I am so full. And it's because of the grace of God that aided me in saying, yes, it's hard, but I'd rather do this version of hard than the other. Because the other brings huge consequences that I do not want to bear. Lord, you've kept me from harm so that it hasn't pained me. You pray this prayer? Bless me. Bow my knee. Pour out your resources. Enlarge my territory so I can be a better steward of your kingdom. Be with me every day of my life and keep me from stupid. You pray that prayer? You'll have an affirmative from heaven every time. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. You're amazing. Pour out your goodness on us. Help us to live in such a way that we can learn from Jabez and how he communicated with you. We honor you for the privilege of being able to talk to you and that you would listen to us. Help us to obey and to honor you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Milestone Church. We hope it's been an encouragement for you today. We invite you to listen to other messages on this podcast or discover who we are by visiting our website at milestonechurch.com. 